Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Welcome to today's episodes of NLP Highlights. My name is Anna Marasovic, and I will co-host this episode with Alexis Ross. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Anna. Great to be here. Today, we will talk about including sign languages in NLP with two guests, Kayo Yin, a master's student at CMU and an incoming PhD at Berkeley. Welcome, Kayo. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And our second guest is Maliha Alikhani, an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Computer Science. Welcome, Maliha. Hi, it's nice to meet you and thanks for the invitation. I look forward to our discussion. Got it. All right, let's start by talking first about the lack of recognition and misconception about sign languages in modern history. Kayo, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I think there are a lot of misconceptions that have been surrounding sign languages historically. And these misconceptions, unfortunately, still persist even today. So as an example, in 1880, there was a conference where teaching sign languages became banned at schools. And this was because the educators at the conference believed that if children were taught sign language, that would hinder the deaf student's ability to lip read or speak. And so I think like the takeaway from this is that like one, like this comment was not grounded in any scientific evidence. And recent studies have even shown that learning a sign language can actually enhance a child's ability to also learn a spoken language. And two, this really shows like how prevalent oralism was back then, where people would prioritize spoken languages over sign languages. And yeah, they basically had a misconception that sign languages were like not as important or as useful as spoken languages, which is completely untrue. So although fortunately since then, sign languages have started to gain some recognition as um, fully fledged and important languages, uh, some of these harmful ideas still persist today. So many deaf children are still subject to linguistic neglect because there are professionals who would like recommend their parents to like not teach their kids sign language and to give them like talker implants or teach them to lip read instead. And this will um, have like really very disastrous consequences on the child's like cognitive development. So yeah, there's lots of misconceptions around sign languages. Emily, would you like to add something on the harms of engaging with deaf people solely with spoken languages? This is a great point. And this is, you know, as if when someone's capabilities, communicative capabilities is mostly visual and that you choose a different mode of communication to communicate with them. There are studies that show that this is going to harm their developmental capabilities in terms of ways that the brain develops in early years to process language. There are harms, behavioral and psychological harms, because in a sense, you're suppressing someone instead of respecting their capabilities and inviting them to engage and communicate. You're choosing a modality that they're rather either not comfortable or not actually able to understand or communicate comfortably. So this is very important for us as a community that think about developing language technologies to really think about ways that we can better engage people with different hearing capabilities. And this doesn't necessarily mean only deaf audience or interlocutors, but also uh, people with hard of hearing because we have deafness is not a very binary kind of degree, right? There is a range and even hearing people sometimes have different communicative preferences where some people, their 
there's research that says some people look at facial expressions very carefully and or hand gestures and they use those. But also hard of hearing people have mixed capabilities in that they can hear some words or to some extent they can process a speech, but yet still their primary or preferable mode of communication might be sign language. So thinking about ways that we can respect that, and this is not the last thing that I would like to add here is not just about people who are born with certain skills, but there's research that shows many veterans or immigrants because of their situation, environmental, whether it was war or disaster, and for a period of their time or the whole lifetime, for the whole lifetime, they lose some capabilities, speech capabilities. So it's very important for us as a language technology community to learn about these differences and think about developing technologies that are more inclusive. Yeah, totally. So it is not surprising that sign language processing has emerged as a researcher field as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how was uh, sign language processing done in its early stages and what were the most notable challenges to making progress? Yeah, I can comment on that. So um, like around the late 90s or the early 2000s, a lot of the research on sign language processing, um, which was like the first works on this research area, um, it was mostly based on using sensors like gloves or headgears or vests that the signer can wear in order to record their movements. Or also some computer vision, but then the signers were asked to wear like colored gloves so that people can see their hands better in the videos. And this was because back then it was very difficult to capture um, all the movements of the signers in a non-intrusive way, since computer vision was still very nascent as a field and was not as advanced as um, the, what we have today. And these works also mostly focused only on recognizing finger spelling or like some isolated signs, which are very like rudimentary or very simplified compared to um, how complex sign language is as a whole. And therefore, it has like very little actual like real world applications because signers use much more than just like a isolated set of signs or um, finger spelling at all times. So yeah, like most of the challenges were mostly from the lack of data that was available for models to be able to learn to process sequences of signs. And also it's not feasible to create like heuristics, which these works were based on to process different signs in a sequence. And also, yeah, the uh, lack of advance in computer vision, which made it difficult for all the fine movements in the hands, as well as the body and the facial expressions to be processed from a video recording on itself. Got it. So data scarcity and advances in video processing have been uh, big obstacles. Have these obstacles been solved in 2020 or this is something we are still working on? Yeah, so I think we have like seen a pretty rapid progress in sign language processing. But then like this progress, I think is uh, slower compared to the progress of deep learning as a whole. But yeah, like I am like pretty like happy to see how the field has evolved. I think like sign language processing research has accelerated really when deep learning methods for visual recognition started to evolve. And so there it started to work very well. And then we didn't need to rely on intrusive methods in order to capture the movements of signers. And people also started releasing and collecting benchmark data sets that other researchers can use to train their models and also compare their improvements on. So I think, yeah, like these two, so um, the having a benchmark data set and the advances of computer vision has really 
made the field progress a lot in the last few years. Yeah. Awesome. I'm hearing a lot of computer vision. And since this is a NLP <laughs> highlights podcast, I have to ask about the role of uh, NLP here. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very poignant concern. Yeah. So the NLP and computational linguistic community has been involved to an extent, but they have been mostly involved for the data collection process or like how to design annotations. So there have been like projects to like gather different corpora of signed languages or discussions on like how to transcribe sign languages in the linguistics community. And the LREC conference has been having a workshop on sign languages for several years. But yeah, like when we look at the progress on the modeling of sign languages and on tasks such as the recognition or production, I do have to say that the computer vision community has been leading the effort so far, which is not like completely unreasonable because we do kind of need to know how to process the visual components first. But yeah, like there has been a lack of um, NLP involvement into the modeling aspect, even though there are like several linguistic complexities that also have to be addressed. So I find that a little bit disappointing, but um, I'm also looking forward to more involvement in the coming years. Yeah. Malika, do you want to add something? Yes, sure. So uh, one thing that is very important here for us, and this is an NLP podcast, is that in our community, we have powerful tools for studying communicative meaning and communicative actions and model interaction between people. And so it might be the case that using state-of-the-art computer vision tools, you may be able to capture the signs or the poses or the boundary of fingertips or facial expressions. But then what is the communicative meaning that is attached to that visual communication, I believe is is what our community can engage and, and solve and focus on. Apart from that, although it's visual, it's a visual language, right? Uh, so we need to uh, really appreciate that and, and understand that and, and think about, although on the surface, there are very different syntactic or lower level processes, but Underneath those, there are contextual inferential properties and you know, that are the same because it's a language and we have you know, the tools to, to study these. So this is very, very important. And apart from advances in computer science, I would like to also point out to advances in cognitive science and neuroscience in ways that people produce signs and people understand sign. These are great resources for NLP researchers who are interested in sign language processing. Apart from that, uh, the learning sciences community have studied for years, and specifically recently, they have published interesting papers on how do learners better learn math topics or science topics, or how do they collaboratively solve problems? So these are great resources together with advances in computer vision. This makes it just a very exciting time for us to think about sign language processing and designing, in some sense, extending natural language processing models to include more visual communication in sign language. And I think this is also a very exciting time for NLP researchers, particularly to work on these problems, because we've made just in the last three to four years, 
advances kind of huge progress in terms of multimodal and multilingual representations and models. And so it seems that really the time is right for us to start thinking about sign language processing and using the tools that we have to tackle problems. Yeah, I agree. You also uh, answered what I was about to ask. Uh, next, and that's the fact that spoken and sign languages are both languages, so they do have phonological and morphological and syntactic and semantic structure, but the difference is, I would say the main difference is uh, one being somewhat unimodal, while the other is very, very multimodal in nature. So can we talk now about linguistic features of sign languages that must be taken into account during their modeling. And if you could use examples uh, to illustrate this, this would be very helpful. Yeah. So I think that in order to accurately model sign languages, we really need to be aware of how information is conveyed and modified in um, the visual, like spatial modality. So yeah, like although there are several um, like fundamental similarities of natural languages that coexist and signed and spoken languages. To give an example, unlike spoken languages, sign languages are very simultaneous. So in spoken languages, like we would say like one word over another, and it's kind of like a linear stream. But then in sign languages, there will be instances where the signer will produce one sign with a single hand and another sign with another hand. So there's like two information going on in two cues. Or um, they would be signing a sequence with both hands, but then they can shake their head while they're signing, which will negate the whole sentence. So this is why like current models that have been modeled after spoken language might need some like adaptation in order to be able to process and combine information from all these different cues. And another like example of a linguistic feature that's maybe specific to sign languages that don't really exist in spoken languages is um, how they interact with space and how they reference objects in space. Since signing space is very important in this language and they really exploit it fully to convey information. So as an example, sign languages can like ground reference into the signing space while they are signing in the conversation. And so to more efficiently like sign certain sequences, then they will either like point to where certain reference have been grounded or they will um, change the direction of certain verbs in in order to express like what the subject of the object of the verb is instead of re-signing grounded reference. And this is where, yeah, like we would need new models that can keep track of um, what are some entities that have been grounded in the spatial context and how that is um, going to affect the meaning of what is being signed. In the paper, you also define and talk about classifiers and role shift. Yeah, so like classifiers are signs where um, like you will not like use it in like a sequence, but um, like it's typically one-handed, which means that they can be more suited in order to describe a movement of an object. And so even though there could be like a sign that is produced using two hands for a certain entity, if you wanted to describe its movement, for example, then it would be more practical to um, sign this by one hand. So classifiers are kind of like an umbrella that can be used to refer to um, like the entity that you are trying to produce. But then instead, you can sign it using only one hand in order to describe how it's moving and like describe its movements using the signing space. And you also talked about role shift. So this is kind of like how we would use quotation. So like, I think like, yeah, like in spoken language or written language, we would like use quotation marks with um, our fingers or while typing. 
But signers, they can quote other characters or if they are storytelling and there's two different characters, then they will, to quote, for example, a tall character, they will stand up straight and then they will sign as if they're that character. And then if they want to shift into another character and quote a child, then they will kind of like stand up smaller and then sign as if they were the child. So this is also important to consider while we are modeling. This way we can keep track of what the different characters are and who is signing what when there is a story that is being told. I think these subtleties are fascinating. In one of our papers, we found that 40, up to 40% of the meaning is represented in their in faces of signers. So this is this mostly involves adjectives and adverbs. So if someone is sad, they would just definitely demonstrate that with their face and then they would sign the rest of the sentence or show the character. Or the subtleties, this this involves like the speed if they would want to and I'm trying to creatively explain because this is an audio podcast. So you know um, <laughs> the way that they would um sign the term rain is they would open their their fingers and they would show this vertical movements from up to down to say that oh, it's raining and if it's heavily raining then the speed that they're uh, showing the moving their hands really changes so so these subtleties matter and and it's fascinating how they're part of the grammar of this language and this is again going back to our point is something that you may miss with just the computer vision tool, right? But rather you would need a model, an NLP model maybe that can think about the communicative meanings of the prosody or the intensification or how really we should properly put together signals from face to signals from hand. You talked about differences I and mean, we talked about differences. There are also very interesting similarities. So similar to spoken languages where we do co-reference resolution, if we have two female character and we would want, and then we say she at right after that, well, there are mechanisms that can tell us does she refer to female one, female two, maybe the most recent one, perhaps most of the time. And, and this is exactly the same, for instance, in sign language. So if they're signing and they're pointing to part of the space, the most recent character that was fixed, let's say, in the signing space in front of you in the right-hand side would be Mary. And then, so if you go back to that, it's Mary, even if you have used that space to, to refer to multiple people. So there are interesting linguistics papers that kind of show behaviors in sign language, linguistic behavior in sign language to gain insights into how we actually in spoken languages do co-reference resolution or how we can accept or refute different models or hypotheses that we have for co-reference resolution. And this is not just about kind of co-reference resolution or necessarily linguistic phenomena, but in general, uh, studying sign language provides insights into ways that we can better understand and model gesture, specifically if it's communicative. Uh, the, the study that Caillou and I worked on on co-reference resolution helped us to learn a lot about how we interpret pointing gestures in human-robot interaction or in other settings, or, you know, subtle facial expressions that matter in sign language. When we study those, it's like it's opening doors to better study other kinds of communication. Yeah. So, I mean, there are these similarities. There are also a lot of differences. 
And when we are doing um, computational models for these languages, we need to consider all of that. But the beginning is to kind of take that all that information and put it inside a model. So what kind of representation for sign languages do we have? Is there a widely adoptive form? If not, what are the options and what are their benefits and drawbacks? Yeah, so there are several different ways that people represent sign language when they're using uh, modeling. But I think like one of the problems or like one of the bottlenecks in the current field of research is that there's no like widely adopted way to transcribe sign language that's common across all the different projects and corpora, uh, which makes it more challenging to like move from project to another and then like use one model that has been developed within another one project into another data set. So I think that is something that um, the community can also try to work on in order to bring the different researchers working together and kind of remove that bottleneck. And in terms of the different ways to represent sign language, in decreasing complexity, we mostly have videos, pose estimations, notation systems, and glossing. So I think videos are probably the most straightforward and maybe one of the more common ways to represent sign language because some of the sign data that we have in the wild, like videos of interpreters, are in video form. But then the drawback of this is that uh, we kind of need to think about like which angles we need to um, record these videos in because if we only have a video facing from the front, then we're going to lose information about the depth of um, some of the signs, which is also important for the um, linguistic understanding. And it's also like very, it takes a lot of space in terms of um, like storage and it's more difficult to um, model on as well. So um, they're more complex, which makes them not as efficient or um, lightweight for modeling. And then pose estimation have been like pretty widely adopted by the modeling community for sign language processing as well. So these people use other models to um, like extract skeletons of a sinus from the videos. Some of the, uh, I guess, drawbacks of this is that even though it's more lightweight than videos, it can also uh, like miss on some information such as the uh, facial information um, that can be very subtle in some instances that could like be crucial in order to um, understand what's going on. And also I think that pose estimation is still not a completely solved problem. So some of the more finer gestures in the fingers or the face is still not modeled accurately enough. So yeah, there's some information loss going on there. And I think notation systems are very interesting. There's like several different notation systems that have been proposed by different linguistic communities. Like one of the more popular ones are hamnosis or sign writing. But yeah, the problem with this is really that there's a lot of different notation systems and different ways to kind of like have a, a sign sequence onto paper. And it's also like not a soft task to like translate from one notation system to another. Like that's almost like a translation task in itself. So yeah, so I think that um, this representation is quite promising because it is designed in order to keep all the different features that's necessary for the linguistic meaning to be preserved. So if um, like we can find a notation system that can satisfy our modeling needs and also our data collection needs that the community can adopt more widely, then that's a very encouraging representation, I think. And then finally, glossing is also very widely used, especially for sign language recognition and translation tasks. And 
So glossing is where we transcribe signs um, using a spoken language words sign by sign. And this is very lightweight. And it is also, there is some like standard to how glossing should be performed. So it's, there's some universality and versatility to glossing. But there's also lots of information loss because like while we're assigning an English word to an ASL sign, then depending on the annotator and the instructions, we might not annotate like everything that is has been contained in the sign sequence. So there is some information loss that can make this representation system not suitable for some tasks. Got it. And going back to poses, in the paper you mentioned that Pose mm-hmm. estimation is also expensive and intrusive. Can you elaborate uh, what does this mean? Yeah, so pose estimation can be um, expensive because we need another model that like performs a uh, skeleton extraction of the videos. And so there are like non-intrusive ways to do this where um like we can simply record the signer and then like apply estimation on that. But then again, we have the problem of um not being able to have a 3D representation. And so there are other ways that people have developed to perform pose estimation to kind of overcome that. But then here, the scientists would have to wear gloves or sensors on their bodies in order to have the movements captured in space. And so even if like we perform this to collect data, then how are we going to deploy this in the wild? Like, are we going to ask signers to always like wear a bunch of sensors on their body? I'm not sure if um, people who are going to use language technologies would like that. Which is why, yeah, it might not be scalable to real-world applications if we're going to rely on like intrusive methods for capturing the movements of signers. Yeah, also highlights the necessity to talk to signing communities about exactly. what are the good and useful mm-hmm. approaches to for them. This is the technology just moves too fast. Uh, it's hard for one to yes. to really uh, you know keep track of it. But, uh, but but you know there are discussions about ways that companies such as Microsoft have built devices like HoloLenses or you know VR technology. How can we make those you know, accessible and useful for collecting sign language data? The problem is like when you wear a VR goggle, your eyes are covered and technically like half of your face is covered, and then that means that we're missing a lot of signals. Even AR can create some difficulty. I know that there are companies that are, that are thinking about ways, solutions around these problems. And specifically during the pandemic, I've heard good news uh, about ways that people can use just videos, you know, recorded Zoom conversations to extract pose accurately or so there are things, uh, good news, uh, (laughs) there is good news and uh, exciting uh, kind of things are happening from both software and hardware. And the communication with the deaf community that you mentioned is just very, very important here. Gallaudet is the only University for Deaf and Hard of Hearing in the U.S. And recently they have expanded. They are, they're very collaborative. Our experience has been that um, they are very supportive. And it's even as someone who has been involved in, in this research or, you know, engaged with this community from local high school, high schools in Pittsburgh or Gallaudet, there is a still so much and that we should learn and there are assumptions that we make about the needs that they have or the things that they we, we, that we want to model that when you actually talk with them and when you visit and when you sit in a 
in their classroom. When you walk in their campus, you'll just see how things work differently and how you should think differently about developing this technology. And so I really want to encourage people who are interested or thinking about um, working on this research to contact people like Gallaudet, local high schools, um, their state. There are talks and open CREST network that they can sign up for email uh, kind of updates and they can attend seminars online. There are lots and lots of opportunities not just in the U.S., but around the world, in Germany, in the Netherlands. I've attended several workshops and conferences. They have very large annotated corpora with actually more accurate gloss representations. And that's one of the reasons why when NLP researchers wants to, want to start doing this research, sometimes they start from German Sign Language as opposed to American Sign Language. There is also another going back to the representation question. Another important point is similar to spoken languages and the way that we pronounce words differently, yet we understand what we say, right? In sign also, people have different prosody, you know, they use different speed. Sometimes, for instance, in Black ASL, they use both hands more often than signing with, with one hand. Or there's research that shows that they use their face or their facial expressions are more important. So there are these variabilities. And when we go to sign language, when we want to understand it and represent it, right, if, we, if the corpus is not representative, if the glossing system is not representative, again, right, we are going to be biased towards certain populations and certain systems. So, so it's very important for us to think about, again, what are the kinds of dialects, at least in the U.S., if we're thinking about American Sign Language? How can we respect that? Or, you know, how can we answer to the need? Like, we don't have a yet a machine-readable Black ASL data set available to us. And this is critical, right? We don't want to just think about weather forecasts. Uh, we don't want, we would want to move kind of, you know, to other domains to think about the real needs that these people have in classrooms when they go to doctor uh, to the doctor's office, right? Where is it that we need to help them if it's in information access to information online, right? You know, how can we present information better? That is critical, that they need to know. Um, there was this project in the Netherlands that I really like about, so it was translating COVID-related critical information to sign language automatically using an avatar. And of course, it's not perfect, but it was very timely. These are the kinds of topics that we should be thinking about. Um, and so, so people who are thinking about putting together data sets or thinking about representations, I would want to say that it's very, very important for us to think about what domain we choose. And we really want to kind of move on from the weather forecast <laughs> data set and, and kind of, you know, expand the domain and the, and the of our knowledge. I can't help but think as you and Kai are talking about the importance of getting representative data and thinking about tasks that really suit the needs of the people that these technologies are intended to serve, that the same is so true for NLP, for written languages, and people just kind of ignore ignore that. And I'm curious, like, having thought about these problems on the sign language processing side, are there any kind of thoughts or takeaways you have for thinking about NLP beyond sign languages too that you want to mention here at some point? 
Yeah, I remember when I went to um, Kolang last year, and um, I think like Stephen Bird had like a keynote presentation on how like we should be addressing NLP for indigenous languages, and that like these languages should not be like a commodity to researchers for them to like kind of advance their own research agenda, but like really think about like why we're doing this research, who and what community this research is going to um, benefit, and like what actually do they need rather than assuming what they need. So yeah, like I think that um, many of um, these like important concerns that we are discussing is not only true for sign languages, but probably true for all languages that are there to serve marginalized communities and underrepresented communities. And so like we really strongly recommend people um, in the sign language processing space to closely work with signers and deaf students and academics and really have them as a leading voice in research projects. And we would have the same recommendations to other NLP researchers who are also working on indigenous languages and lower resource languages that are there to serve marginalized communities. To add to that, I just want to mention that there are uh, ways that, you know, we may think that, oh, if I want to reach out to a deaf scientist, to a deaf linguist, I have to schedule way ahead an interpreter. But there are kind of free telephone lines available. So there are several services that are available in the U.S. If you would want to reach out to them, that you can just call them and they'll, there's, they have a phone, you know, or they can connect to Zoom, jump on Zoom immediately. These are free services services, and you can connect with the community. So there are different ways that if you reach out, they will accommodate you. And they're usually very excited about ways that you can help them with your technology and talent to live a better and easier life. I want to go back to details of the current state of sign language processing for a moment. I hope some of the listeners are now motivated to work on some of these tasks, but can you tell them a little bit about what are computational resources that are available and tasks that are already developed for sign language processing that they might start working on tomorrow? And maybe what are the limitations of this task from the standpoint of linguistic theories of uh, sign languages? So there are several data sets that are available, mostly in the domain of better forecast, but this involves sign language, German sign language, American sign language. And as part of an EU-funded project, the underrepresented languages in the Europe and in, in Africa are documented as part of their bank. So, so there are a number of data sets that you can start from to think about uh, problems such as translation, if you would want to go from speech to sign or sign to speech. Going from uh, speech to sign involves thinking about the problem of gesture generation or a skeleton generation, which it, which to me is a fascinating problem. And, and sign language is a, this domain is particularly interesting because gesture can be so varied and vague, whereas in signs, there are certain constraints that you can work with when you're thinking about gesture generation. There are libraries that are available, previous work and codes that are publicly available that you can use as baselines if you would want to go from speech to sign. One critical, very important problem is how you evaluate sign generation. 
uh, currently we don't have techniques that can automatic metrics that can tell you how accurate the generated poses are. So we use measures such as, you know, back translation and then the blow score, Rouge score, but, but those are not really ideal. So this is a very interesting, important problem that I believe can translate to many application and just uh, multimodal communicative presentation generation. If you would want to go, if, if you're interested in the side of understanding, uh, as we talked about it in this in this session, you know the the problem of representation. Do you prefer to work with continuous representations? If you're working with continuous representations, how are you going to think about uh, kind of learning the meaning constraints? Are you going to leverage gloss representations or not? Or are you know how are you thinking about more cognitively aware techniques to engage the, the research that already exists in the cognitive science? community for ways that people process signs and understand signs. And, you know, of course, one one thing, you know, if you're not going from sign to text, if you're actually going from sign to speech, speech generation itself is a very difficult problem. You know, when do you pause? When do you write? So, so this is just a, a very complex and difficult problem, but fascinating from different aspects when you, when you think about it. There are libraries um, kind of publicly available for running baselines for most of these things. If you stick to the domain that the model works for, of course, you know, we it's an NLP podcast, so no need to <laughs> explain that. But, you know, it's extracting or automatically augmenting glosses or generating glosses or how to work with low resource languages. And again, a lot of research that already exists in low resource language and low resource language processing low resource NLP that can be applied to sign language processing ways that we process sign. Yeah, Kaya, do you like to add to this? Yeah, yeah. I really need to emphasize also how um, that, yeah, like sign language processing is such a, like a relatively new field of research. So there's still a lot of unexplored topics and and also it's a very multidisciplinary like research area as well, which is why I feel like there's a lot of ideas that is like really out there already that we can use to um, develop sign language processing, but that people have not explored yet. So like, for example, for some of the already like existing tasks that we have, like sign segmentation, that is like, when do we know if somebody stops signing or where there's sound sentence boundaries in signing? Like if we just add like positive to that, which are like reliable markers of um, sentence segmentation, or if we like kind of draw influence or inspiration from speech segmentation, then maybe there's something that we can do in that space um, at the intersection of that. And also for translation, like in English, we have like lots of um, polysemous words. How can we disambiguate them? Well, in science, we also have like polysemous signs where um, the same like hand shapes can have different meanings depending on context. So there's like lots of like room to explore in terms of how we can like resolve these ambiguities. And yeah, and I'm also really excited by all the um, the NLP plus other field interdisciplinary like collaborations that we can do in sign language processing. So one obvious intersection is NLP plus computer vision, of course, but there's also like NLP plus HCI, for example. So if you're creating avatars for sign language production, then how can we create avatars that people can understand well, that people can interact with, and like they have like natural like gestures that, yeah, that is like 
pleasing for young people to look at, or even like NLP plus educational tools, like how can we um, create educational tools for signers? What are ways that we can teach children sign language using technology, for example? So yeah, I think it's a very exciting field. And especially for people who are already doing some research, I think it's quite natural to draw some connections of um, what they can bring into the sign language field in terms of what they already have as expertise. So I find it a really exciting area to kind of jump on right now. From all the tasks we mentioned so far, is it fair to say that then sign language production is like a holy grail of all these tasks? Because it at least seems to me like an outsider to this field that it includes the most of the linguistic features we talked about before such as referencing in visual space that I don't think it come out as much in uh, translation to spoken language, but please correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. I know I agree with you. I think this is, so far, there's been research on a skeleton generation. So they go from speech to some sort of a skeleton. It's not like a full body avatar. And then again, there are problems in that your fingers cannot move backwards, for example. Or, uh, and so there are things that it's really hard to teach to machines or the conventions around sign production and how we can actually teach that to machines. And that involves different, and this is a great point, Anna. I mean, you mentioned co-reference resolution. You can think about turn-taking. If an avatar is interacting with an interlocutor, with a user, how should we signal end of turn or how should we understand the deaf user if they are willing to take turn? How do we interpret their facial expressions or manual signs? You can think about eye gaze and the way that, you know, that, that where the avatar is looking, that becomes very tricky because now you're not an avatar or a robot that can talk with hearing people, does not rely heavily on eye gaze, although I, I don't agree with that as a multimodal researcher, but, but in sign language, this suddenly becomes really, really, really critical because everything is in the visual space and the signing space in front of the signer. So you should be very careful where you look, how you signal, how you kind of try to win the attention of the user. And how do you go about it should the sign uh, should the size of the hand of the avatar be a little larger for the signer to be able to easily understand the movements of the fingers and avatar you know working with avatars and and kind of animated characters here is the only thing that's possible for, uh, for now or the most visible one because with robots there are robots that can generate kind of more fine grain uh, finger movements, but coherent and accurate signing with the right prosody seems that we're years away from that. All right. So as a avenues for better design and implementation of sign language processing models, you mentioned to better explore linguistic possibilities of sign languages, to collaborate with different communities, to develop tasks in the standard NLP pipeline, and to focus on real-world data. Uh, my question is, uh, why do you expect that core NLP tasks could and should be extended to sign languages despite the differences between them? Yeah, so um, I see core NLP tasks as um, stepping stones or foundations into automatic language understanding. And even though there are several differences that we've talked a lot about, I think that like these 
tasks that we have, such as like syntactic parsers or um, like co-reference resolution or tokenizers, these are all something that is also like relatable for signed language, just because these are some of the fundamental building blocks of um, language that is common across all natural languages and regardless of the modality of the language. And so, yeah, so I think that if we are able to um, extend these core NLP tools to sign language, then um, this will first like improve our understanding of how we can model these sign languages. And in order to like develop these tools, then we have to also like ask ourselves like questions like, yeah, like what does a part of speech tag mean in sign language? Or like, will we have the same set for um, spoken or signed? And by kind of like having the opportunity to ask ourselves this question, I feel like we'll benefit a lot from um, understanding, yeah, like what can we model in sign language and what are some things that we can draw from the existing NLP research and what are some things that we will have to add or modify from the existing tools. And also um, like these tools are um, like currently like widely used in um, NLP models with higher level applications, like Transformers will like use tokenizers to um, make a sentence into a vector input. And so if we're going to try to um, kind of recycle these architectures or um, like use these models for sign language as well, then we would need these basic tools that can also perform these tasks. And for example, like co-reference models in um, English, some of the um, unsupervised heuristics one would also rely on POS tagging. So that's where that would be important for sign language as well if you want to reuse that. So I think that, yeah, like even if we end up like not requiring that as a foundation of our higher level application systems, it's still something that's like really fundamental to language that's important for us to understand if we want to um, be able to create models of sign language that like people can interact with and amazing avatars um, that's going to, yeah, like teach people sign language and so on. Malika, do you want to add something to that before we move to data sets? So I, I agree with everything that Kayo said. It's also important, now that you're asking me this question, I'm also thinking twice uh, about this. It's, for, you know, it's important for us to think about what we can learn from sign language literature, from the linguistics, the cognitive science, the, the people who sign, right? You know, um, how should we, you know, we, we think we, we call this tokenization, but maybe we should think about different meaning units and how they kind of use them and adopt them to communicate. You know, an example, maybe this can help. So it's been about two years that um, as part of a project that was funded by the University of Pittsburgh, we're developing a lexicon for biology and bioinformatics books and late kind of two years of high school and then first year of college. And we see that, you know, there might be a term in biology like cell that in spoken language, it's cell. Everyone says cell. But then when we ask 10 signers to sign this term, if they come from different parts of the country, they're going to sign this differently. And in the context, they will understand that. So if we have them, you know, sit in a room and talk about this concept, they understand that there are differences and the signs might just come really look different. But so if we, were, we wanted to tokenize that uh, or, you know, assign meaning to it, this would be a completely different word. But but yet there is this amazing flexibility in ways that they probe context in smart ways to learn about this. So there are all of these very interesting problems that we can think about as NLP researchers. And, you know, that might also 
change the way that we're thinking about NLP in some cases. Oh, yeah. Lots of open research questions here and opportunities for new students to work on. I want to talk a little bit about uh, collecting data set and data sets. And I think we didn't maybe highlight enough so far how scarcity of data is a real obstacle for sign language processing. So can you tell us about criteria that uh, we should fulfill if we were collect more data for some of these tasks? One thing that I think is very important here uh, for us is to think about, and I mentioned this before, is to think about the domain of the data set. If we think about the possibilities that um, exist in the domain of health and education and entertainment, information access, it doesn't necessarily have to be weather or anything that is available online, but what we can really think about real use cases and prioritize that. I want to also point out that just in the last kind of three to five years, we've seen many, many new YouTube channels and different videos, active channels. So if people are interested in kind of, you know, asking for permission and scraping those and use them, these are related to fingerspell, Black ASL, people who are learning ASL in different age, you know, for different age groups. So there are lots of possible opportunities if people are looking out. Uh, so that is one thing. Another thing is a representativeness or you know, inclusive, how inclusive the data set is. So thinking about the kinds of demographics, gender, what parts of the country, and how can we think about uh, putting together more inclusive and diverse data sets so we can build models that are fairer and more inclusive. So that is um, a very important thing to think about. Another thing is the kinds of annotations that we provide. We talked about representation. Creating large data sets is not enough. Are we, can we also at least provide glosses publicly, make that publicly available for at least part of the data? So people, if they would want to annotate more, they know what principles we have followed or, you know, what they should follow that kind of suit best this data set, this particular data set. I wanted to say that it's very important because it's a visual language to think about the quality of the videos, um, the context of the studio, the light, the background color, because we are thinking about extracting features using open pose and other libraries from these data sets. So thinking about how you set up the environment is really, really important. And there are guidelines for that. So you can just simply click data using Zoom, but it's important that, uh, what background you choose or how you set up the light, right? Um, and so there are these considerations that really matter um, and in ways that people can use your data set. And lastly, I would like to encourage people who are thinking about building data sets to think about the use case and why they're building that data set, right? Uh, and so what kinds of questions we'll be able to answer with a data set that you are building. The problem that we have right now with the existing data sets is that a lot of them are not conversational, right? So they will not provide this opportunity for us to study turn-taking, right, for example, or maybe co-reference. What kinds of annotations can you provide so we can study co-reference? So thinking about what questions matter, right? And, and, and kind of aligning your setup and annotation with that 
is going to be very important. Yeah, I think this principle is something we can take in a broader NLP, right? You mentioned uh, these YouTube channels, which I found interesting. And in the paper, you do also mention something about a naturally produced sign, how a lot of these data sets are synthesizing the signs and how this is a problem. If we were to scrape YouTube videos, would that be a naturally occurring sign or artificial one? Yeah, so um, uh, by like naturally like produce signs, like I guess like our definition is that it's not something that has been interpreted from a spoken language sequence. So I think that YouTube videos that Malihe was talking about would definitely fit into the category of naturally produced signs because the um like the uh, problem of um not having naturally produced signs is um like the problem of translation needs where interpreted signs are different and there have been studies showing that they are different from naturally produced signs and also um the way that a hearing signer sign can also be different from deaf signers or native signers l1 and l2 signers also sign differently and going back to the importance of um, a variety of demographics people of different genders of different cultures of different geographic areas, age groups, all of that can also influence the way that people sign. So that's why it's really important to have a diversity of signers. And another like difficulty, or at least like something to consider that I wanted to add, which um, I was reminded of when I heard about the YouTube videos is really um, that one like difficulty of um, releasing uh, signed data publicly is the difficulty in anonymizing the data sets because these data are like recorded unless like we do post extraction. Um, they'll have the person's face and everything on it. So that's where um like there will be less people who might be comfortable having like their signing um as part of a research data set. So um, this is where also um it might be um worthwhile to like consider research efforts on how we can anonymize sign language data in a way that makes sense. That in a way that's not like removing somebody's face because that's going to um like remove important features, but how can we preserve information while protecting the identity of signers, for example? This is a great point. And one of the interesting recent kind of uh, studies that I saw, they use animation, right? So to, to just change the real face with an avatar that is exactly that face, but it's, you know, just for the purpose of anonymity, which I found interesting. Yeah, totally. Are there any other tools that could simplify the part of the data collection process? Yeah, so I think that's also an ongoing research problem that I think has a very high potential for impact because um, data collection is really one of the biggest bottlenecks of um, sign language processing. Like researchers in this field are always like talking about data and like how can we have more data that we can use because it's so difficult to find annotators who have the expertise to annotate sign language, as well as finding like people to um, like invite into a studio to produce signs for us or find like sign language data in the wild because like we don't have like Wikipedia articles that we can just like scrape from our data sets. So that's something that's extremely difficult. So yeah, like one of the suggestions that I've had was to really like build like maybe ML infused tools or um, that can expedite the data annotation process. So for example, we can use like the segmentation models that we already have to like already segment the signed like sequences and then the annotators can build on top of that. And we can maybe have like a signed recognition system that can like kind of like suggest annotations to annotators so that they can just do perform post-editing rather than having to annotate from scratch. And anything really that can make the lives of annotators easier because they're already so scarce and it's a very demanding job. 
I think it takes 600 minutes of um, collection and annotation to produce only one minute of signed data that's annotated. So yeah, it's extremely like um, resource intensive and expensive. And it's really like one thing that, um, yeah, like if we only we had ways to gather data more easily, that can really help us advance the field. Yeah, hopefully lots is going to be developed here to expedite that process. I want to shift gears a little bit now and come back to something we already talked briefly about when we talked about how signing uh, communities had been asked to wear gloves and how that was intrusive. And it seems like that has been rejected by them. So what mistakes were done that resulted in such cases and how can we avoid them in the future? Yeah, I think this is really from a lack of communication between the people designing and making this technology and then people who use sign languages. There's like so much like anecdotal and rather like sad stories of um, like different startups or like researchers who are claiming to have the like signing gloves that can translate sign language when these gloves can only recognize like finger spelling or a few isolated signs, which is really not solving a sign language translation problem. And also, I think like, I've seen like a tweet from a deaf linguist or a deaf academic that I follow who are like, it's like Groundhog Day that like people keep seeing new signing gloves like starting to pop up because some people who have like good intentions to um, like provide this technology, yeah, they just didn't have didn't think or didn't have the opportunity to talk to um, somebody who would use this technology, which is why they end up focusing their efforts on a product that deaf people would actually not use because it's uncomfortable to have to use gloves in order to sign. And it's also kind of oralist as well that the signers should be the ones who wear these centers on them in order to be understood by non-signers. Uh, so yeah, I think this is why it's really so important to um, have uh, communication with the deaf community in order to um, start and continue any research on sign technology. And I also want to add that um, like this is beneficial also for the people working on the technology because, for example, I'm not a signer and I don't know any sign language fluently. So there's lots of like things about sign language that um, I had to learn on my own while I was starting to do research. And I also got to learn from my signing collaborators while I was writing papers. So like, for example, when I was working on like the pointing signs, the co-reference resolution paper with um, Kenneth DeHong, who's one of my collaborators at Gallaudet University, he had like some like really good thoughts on like, how I can collect some data on the pointing signs and like about like some like features of ASL that's similar to German sign language that I can leverage. So yeah, it's really like a win-win situation and we really cannot recommend enough the importance as well as the benefits of um, having this interaction with signing communities when we're trying to do research in this space. And I like to add to that, it's about the devices and the comfort level and how we design the setup. It's also about how we are asking the signing community to give us their time. So if we can ask them, if we can collect data while they are learning in a classroom, you know, instead of asking them to devote certain, you know, hours and hours annotating or so, you know, we're thinking about what setups already exist, right? Or that that we can kind of add can use in, in the right ways for data collection. Or, you know, thinking about working on set of problems that can really in the next 
few years at least solve a problem that they have. So if they think that there is a problem in learning or um, in medicine, you know, when they go to doctors, if there are problems that are making life difficult for them, if we can align our efforts with their need of the community, this is going to, as opposed to thinking about, oh, how can we better improve our computer vision algorithm for something or NLP model uh, for something. And I would want to also, you know, related to how we can collaborate and involve signers, it's not just about asking them about their needs. We have great deaf scientists. These are linguists, computer scientists, cognitive scientists, HCI. And, uh, and so when we write papers, ways that we can involve them in our research projects so we can learn more from them and move towards a more kind of inclusive NLP, I think, since we're getting close to the closing, is, is, is really, really important. And that's one of the messages of the paper. Yeah, I loved your also your suggestion to include them into our reviewing processes. Like there are so many different ways to build this collaboration. Yeah, uh, these are all my questions. I don't know, Alexis, do you have anything else you would like to ask? I guess, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to say before we finish? Not really. I would just want to uh, thank you for this opportunity so we could share some of research findings and uh, <laughs> topics and, and sign language. And we said it already, but we would we really encourage people to look into research topics and sign language processing. We will try to make resources publicly available. There are efforts where you're thinking about creating websites and repositories where they can list all of the resources. So you will see more and uh, please feel free to reach out to us or anyone if you need help to start, when you, when, uh, you would want to start think about doing this research. I want to thank both of you very much for this opportunity. It was a very fun conversation. Yeah, I also want to second everything that Maliha said. Yeah, thank you so much, Anna and Alexis, for having us and giving us this platform to like discuss all these ideas that we're very passionate about and that we love sharing with um, other NLP researchers. And also to um, anyone who is listening to this podcast, if there's anything, like any questions that you have or anything you want to discuss with me or you want to learn more about, like please feel free to contact me or Malihe or um, any of my co-authors on my sign language papers as well. I'm sure that they'd be more than happy to talk about any of these ideas. And yeah, I just want to second that there's like so many like open research problems and open topics that people can work on and that people can kind of like jump into for sign language research. And it's a really fun research area. Um, you get to learn like so much about the languages and just like, yeah, like about languages in general. So I really recommend that to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time and for also doing all this amazing research.